Today on episode number 210 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, James M. Lang talks about his book, Teaching the Literature Survey Course. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. On today's episode, James M. Lang is joining me once again. I'm so fortunate to have been able to talk to him many times on the podcast in the past. James is a professor of English and the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence at Assumption College in Massachusetts, where he teaches courses in British literature and in creative nonfiction writing. He's the author of many books and more than 100 reviews or essays on topics ranging from higher education to British literature. Jim writes a monthly column for the Chronicle of Higher Education, as well as contributing regularly to America and Notre Dame magazine. He edits a series of books on teaching and learning in higher education for the University of West Virginia Press, which we will be talking about today. Jim, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I'm always glad to be here with you. Oh, I'm always glad to be here with you. And it's so fun. Just you recently took a trip with your family and I felt almost like I was on the trip with your family. It's, it's fun being connected on social media and getting to you know know the different trips that you take and the institutions you get to visit with your workshops and stuff. It's really fun to have known each other for years now. Yeah, it's uh, an amazing experience being able to go and spend some time at Central European University and yeah, so it's uh, some of the opportunities that this work has opened up have been really unbelievable and things I never would have imagined. Yes, and I I was telling you before we started recording, I feel the same about the podcast. There's all these things I never would have imagined as well and getting to know people like you and you're such a collaborative learner and it's fun you've connected with me with countless people who have either been on the podcast or just contributed to my own learning and I just thank you so much for all of that. It's really fun to be connected with you. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the joys of both writing the Chronicle column and directing our teaching center on campus is I just get exposed to a lot of people who are doing really interesting things. And I selfishly, I like that for my own teaching development and writing, but it also just gives you a sense of sort of hope that there's so much great stuff going on in higher education in spite of all the sometimes the overarching <laughs> narratives might seem negative, but there's a lot, there are a lot of great things happening. One of the recent ways that we reconnected was your generous offer to have West Virginia University Press sponsor the transcripts for the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. So we are sadly still in the process of going back through the first 200. It's actually way more challenging than I predicted. There are all these really smart people that come on the show and and say things that I can't even Google my way out of. So it slows the process <laughs> down sometimes. But today's episode is part of that sponsorship. And I'm excited. I, I did want to say, though, I think you had a little bit of false advertising on this book. So would you would you start by just sharing the title of the book? 
It's called Teaching the Literature Survey Course, New Strategies for College Faculty. So here's... And what do you find false advertising Oh, I was going to say, that, here's where it is. Well, maybe it was, maybe it's my own biases, but because I did agree to read the books, of course, that I'll be talking to people about, what an idea. I'll be doing my homework on each of the authors that we have come in. I thought this one was not going to apply to me very much. I thought ah. that, you know, and because I, I mean, I'm sure at some point I took a literature <laughs> survey course, but, you know, somewhere in my education I must have, but I thought it would be very specific to that application. And I'm not kidding you, every page, every single page I've got a highlight on. And they, I mean, it just, I just thought what it really did for me was just ignite my imagination in all these different areas. And I haven't really figured out yet what I'm going to do with that. And we'll talk more about the specifics. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I literally just every page, I was like, wow, I could do something with that and highlight, highlight, highlight. I have to then, you know, synthesize it a little bit more now, but I don't know if you, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Cause I, I did see recently, Jesse Stommel has been tweeting about the lack of good professional development that we give to graduate students on teaching. And, yeah. and then yeah. one of his tweets, I didn't want to, like, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm being critical. I genu generally, when I ask a question, I mean it, it's not meant to be rhetorical, but he used the phrase discipline specific pedagogies. And it yeah. kind of made me yeah. curious, you know, cause I always think like, well, doesn't it apply to everyone or anyway, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, on the one hand, the kinds of questions that, that are raised in the book and that are the essays try to answer are in some ways potentially applicable to any discipline because almost every discipline has these kind of introductory level type survey classes. And the literature survey class is not quite an introductory level class. It's usually the one that's kind of a little bit, you know, one step into a major. But most majors will have a class like this, which is designed to kind of give students a broad overview of the discipline or the, the content of, of the discipline. And those classes all face a kind of similar challenge, which is they have the admirable intention of, of trying to give students that broad overview and a sense of the breadth of the discipline. But, but to me, that kind of, I'm not sure how effective the courses are in accomplishing that because of the fact that they kind of hit so lightly on lots of different topics. And I'm not sure that's really an avenue towards deep learning. So, so on the one hand, that challenge is one that I think is sort of universal. On the other hand, I do agree that we need discipline-specific, you know, pedagogical development. And one of the ways that you can do that is by looking at the sort of problem areas of a discipline. And like, so what are the courses which, you know, that everybody hates to teach or that, mm. you know, we, we know are really difficult for students, for example, or that we have high rates of failure and dropout, or that, you know, keep getting pushed in and out of the curriculum because we can't decide whether they really belong or not. Like when you look at those areas, it's kind of like a, almost like a problem-based approach to faculty development within the disciplines. Look at where the problems are, and that's sometimes where you can identify places where you can do faculty development uh, and think more about the purpose of a major, think more about the purpose of, you know, teaching in general, um, these are these are kind of interesting areas in the same way that I think, you know, that's sometimes my approach to faculty development in general is to look at problem areas like cheating or distraction and then mm -hmm. try and see, okay, what can we learn from this about actually how to do our jobs more effectively? So these courses to me are a kind of really interesting place for English faculty on the one hand to think about the major and about what do we expect an English major to know 
and why do we care about them knowing these kinds of things? But then on the other hand, they do raise these more general questions of what do we expect in terms of breadth of knowledge within a discipline and how do we get students best to learn that? One of the things that people will say that's really an identifier of a problem area you discuss a lot is, I can't cover it all. You know, I can't figure out how to cover it all yeah. in the 15 weeks or 12 weeks or what have you. And, and what are some of the ways in which we should really pay attention to that thought process? Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question because, again, if you, if you look at the purpose of the course, the purpose of the course explicitly in almost in the way it was created and the way most departments teach it is coverage. It's designed to cover a lot of different areas of English literature. You know, the most common way to divide it up is there's one American Lit Survey class and there's two British Literature Survey classes. So those three classes are essentially supposed to cover British and American literature from their origins to the present day. And, of course, that's a hopeless objective. You know, if you just pick one of the anthologies, you're going to find 10 times the amount of things in there that you can ask students to read. So on the one hand, you know, we have faculty who kind of feel this obligation. I've got to cover the, the major authors and trends and everything. And that puts a kind of you know, pressure on you to, to feel like you have to do this. On the other hand, it's, it's, a, it's been a completely unrealistic aspiration from the start. You're never going to be able to cover everything that is, um, you know, potentially coverable in that area. So, so then that kind of, if you, if you think about it that way, it kind of frees you up to think a little bit about, all right, so what really matters here? Um, it's not just acquainting students with these 30 authors. That can't be the reason why we're doing this. The reason has to be more about our expectations of developing certain kinds of skills in terms of how they interpret literature, certain awareness of you know, the way we canonize certain texts over other texts or the ways in which we expect certain trends or you know, big, larger movements in literature. And, and again, why do we care about those things? So it raises really interesting. Once you sort of let go of the idea that this is just a coverage course, then it really opens you, you up to kind of interesting questions or new ways to think about how to achieve other goals in that course. I remember an early conversation of ours, and I, I mean, I've just learned so much from you, Jim, but that I sort of came across and probably <laughs> rightfully so as minimizing the importance of having a body of knowledge that is memorized. You know, I, I, I think I dismissed it at the time in my own understanding of pedagogy. And I remember distinctly yeah. you saying like, no, I actually think there should be things that are memorized in that we don't have to go Google or, or, you know, whatever the equivalent is in a particular discipline. And so I wonder if you might contrast a little bit, just this tension that we have to cover it all. That's not helpful. But then, and I think this does bring us a little bit more into contrasting surface learning versus deep learning. Yeah, I mean, I, I still, I've, you know, this is something I've changed my views on over the course of my career. And I, I think 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said, you know, doesn't matter what you do in there, as long as you're just sort of teaching some skills and that's, and that's, you know, the ultimate goal. But I, this literature on, you know, teaching and learning has convinced me actually that, you know, teaching skills doesn't work very well if students don't have knowledge to work with. And so it's not for me a question of, you know, should we just be, does it does, does not matter at all what we teach in the survey, as long as we're exposing students to some literature and helping them develop skills, um, that would be sort of one side of it. And then the other end of that spectrum would be, no, we have to make sure that they have sort of memorized the core works and authors 
uh, from these two countries and time periods. And there's a middle ground. The middle ground is, you know, we do want to make sure that they have some basic familiarity with the sort of core trends, the, some of the most important authors and work, you know, that they're going to encounter in later courses in the major or that they are going to be that are going to be useful to them as they go through their college education, people that are exposing them to new perspectives, ideas, ways of thinking, and ways of writing. And that's our job as experts is to try to identify what those are. But five faculty members are going to come up with five different lists. So it's not so much for me that we, 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 sh- we can let this question go entirely of knowledge and coverage, I think, but it's also not the case that we, you know, we have to like, identify it's going to always be these 30 authors that everybody covers. There's, mm-hmm. there's a middle ground here, and that middle ground is we acquaint students with some core knowledge, and we're going to be able to make the judgments about that because we're the experts. But then once we have identified what that is, then we think a little bit more deeply about, okay, so why does it matter? How does this connect to your life? What kinds of skills can we develop as you're working your way through this knowledge? So I'm a pretty middle ground person, and I'm in a sort of middle ground on and this is as in many other things. When you talk about in the book, and of course, it's, it's threaded throughout the book, the, the difference between surface learning and deep learning, I'm just going to read your words now. The deep learning is when we see or create connections when students see or create connections between the course material and their own lives and experiences when they have the opportunity to take what they're learning and process it in challenging and creative ways, and when they take active control of their learning and the ways in which they demonstrate it to their professor. Yeah, that's a pretty good list. (laughs) (laughs) That's it right there. That's really the ideal. Well, and 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 I think, you know, those are the, those are the kinds of things, those are, you know, there's kind of three core things there, right? Like being able to see why the literature matters outside of the specific context of that when you're sitting in the classroom with students, uh, how can they transfer um, what they're learning or what they're, the skills they're developing to context outside of it? I mean, that's, that's the goal of all education, right? Mm-hmm. But if we just sort of teach the class in such a way that here's the great author, here's the next great author, um, we're not giving them the opportunity to do that. So helping them see connections and make connections to context outside of the class, giving them, secondly, sort of new and, and sort of interesting opportunities to, to, to demonstrate their learning, not necessarily new, but a variety of, of ways to do that, you know, instead of just take what this author said and repeat it back to me in a three-page essay, you know, we want to be able to think more creative. We should be able to think more creatively about that uh, in terms of how students can demonstrate their learning to us. And that was something we were explicitly looking for in the essays that we invited, is p- examples of people who were letting students demonstrate their learning in survey courses in more unique and creative ways. And then the third thing in that list you just mentioned is letting students have a little bit of a voice in this process. And so it's not just about, again, like me saying, you know, you must know these 30 authors uh, and you're going to demonstrate your knowledge in this way, but inviting students to say, look, you know, the, the list of authors which we believe are important is always changing and evolving. Uh, you know, if you look at a survey anthology from today, I think I'm looking at the right now across me the ninth edition of the Norton Anthology of English Literature. Compare that table of contents with the first edition of the Norton Anthology of English Literature, and you're going to see really different lists of stuff. So that's changing and evolving always, and there's no reason why students shouldn't be able to 
Um, you know, think about that and try to identify here are the ones that seem to matter most to us right now or matter most to our society right now, as well as, you know, here are some ways in which I think I could demonstrate, in which I think I could demonstrate this learning to you. Here are some things I've tried in other classes, which really, you know, were, were very meaningful to me. Is, could we do some version of that in here? I, I want to hear that kind of thing from students. Mm-hmm. Well, we get to explore just four ideas and inspirations that come from the book, although there are many more. And I do also want to mention that the book is chock full of sample documents, there's worksheets and syllabi. So it's a very practical book in terms of actually being able to take this inspiration and do something with it. And so we're going to just limit it to four. I know it's hard for both of us to do, but let's start out with, oh my gosh, the first one I was literally just highlighting the whole chapter. So (laughs) tell us about mapping early English literature. Yeah, I love that one. Um, That's probably why we put it first. You know, it takes the idea of so much of literature we think about just in terms of these survey courses, we just think about them in terms of time. We break them up according to time. You know, the first survey goes usually to around 1800, and the second survey goes from 1800 to present, and so in the British context. And then we just kind of move chronologically through the survey, and that's the sort of organizing principle. And I just love what Kevin Bork did in this essay, or what he does in his class, is to think, what are some other ways in which we could sort of organize this knowledge? And he still does, you know, sort of walk students through in a, uh, in a chronological fashion, but he also uses geography as an organizing principle. And so the students are kind of using Google Maps to look at where the texts that they are reading are centered or located. And they're kind of one of the assignments, which I just find so amazing, is they can make an audio walking tour of, of something that, that they write in the class where they, you know, will go to, like it was, if you were going to be a tourist in this location, you know, you could put on the headphones and the students are kind of presenting them with a, an audio tour of, of what they would be seeing, uh, how that you know, relates to the literature that surrounds that place. So I just thought that was so creative and interesting, both in terms of this is another way to think about how you might organize a survey, what your organizing principle is. Uh, and and, there's, and that, that opens up lots of, there's, you know, to me that opens up other possibilities. We could organize these courses in, in other ways as well. But the other thing is it's just a really creative assignment. I, I like, and I just always, I find fascinating like specific techniques and assignments. So to me, that was a great example of something concrete that, um, that emerged from his survey class. The other thing that I thought was unique, although please correct me if I'm wrong, because this is certainly out of my areas of expertise, is just that he oriented, at least in one of his classes, things around London, and but yeah. around London at different points of time. And I thought, I wondered if that was perhaps a way to address this concern with trying to cover everything, if we can have where London almost becomes a character that we become so familiar with, and then we get you know, introduced to that character through different spans of time, but it can, it can center us and make the learning easier because we have that sort of as our hub of our network of learning. I don't know if I'm making any sense at all. Or no, 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 absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because and that's a great example. Like London there becomes, again, like it's a little bit more specific than geography. It's, as I was saying, you're right. It is, it's, it's very much located around London. And that could make you, again, like think of the idea, well, how else could I organize? What, what, what are some other principles that I could use? Well, I could pick, for example, one theme right, and sort of see how that theme plays itself throughout this time period or pick like one 
type of person and see how that type of character type reappears throughout. You know, so, I mean, we just sort of take it for granted that we have to do this chronologically. And to me, Kevin's essay opens up this idea of, no, actually, there might be other ways to do this that, that not only make sense and can help us achieve our goals, but that are going to, as you said, help students organize the knowledge a little bit more effectively and think more creatively about the material from the course. I would become really interested, I think, just feeling like it wasn't all so outside of my understanding that because I then really gained this familiarity about one place, then it's like, okay, I can take in new information, but I can root it toward this common theme. I I thought that was a really unique thing. Well, the next one is certainly a challenge many of us face, isn't just the coverage, but, and I have not heard this done in English classes, is a team-based approach, and in this case, specifically to the American survey. Yeah. So this is Desiree Henderson's essay about using um, team-based learning. And she, of course, uses the sort of formal process of team-based learning that, you know, folks can look up online, but that was, you know, it's got a a pretty kind of well-established process to it. And what I really like about this one and what I liked in particular about this approach to um, team-based learning, which was developed by Larry Michelson, back in the 1970s and is now being used in sort of disciplines across different universities and colleges. But what I really like about it are the individual and then group assessments. And I I love the way that this team-based approach sort of gives students the opportunities first to sort of demonstrate their own knowledge through these sort of these quick little assessments that they do, but then they get to come together and work to demonstrate their knowledge in the group. So it's got this formal process of of doing that, um, which readers can learn about, again, just by sort of Googling team-based learning, and um, you'll find plenty of resources on that. But I just love the idea that first I'm held accountable for my own, but then I get to kind of pool my knowledge, correct it, improve it, and extend it by working together um, with my team to try and solve a problem or or take what I – my individual – sort of silo of knowledge and put it together with these other folks. So that's what I find really fascinating about that one. And I, I had never, I hadn't seen this approach used in a literature class at all, actually, but the way she does it, I think is really creative and interesting. I'm glad that you mentioned the formality of it. I had Jim Sibley on the podcast who described team-based learning and and this methodology. And and I think prior to that, I would have just assumed like, oh, yeah, oh, I do that. Sure. We, we learn in teams yeah. all the time. But it's actually a specific right. defined pedagogy that we can learn more about. Although I didn't remember from the 1970s. That's great. That's been used that long. And lots of people have uh, done a lot of work around it. So um, and it's worth looking at. And then also um, listen to that episode. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Jim Sibley one. And, and there's some resources that he linked to as well. And one of the things that is too, I mean, the thing about team-based learning is it's usually sort of problem-based. So like, you know, people pose problems that students are going to be solving in teams for a lot of the class period. And it's challenging. I think the reason I had never heard about this was because it's challenging to think about, well, what kinds of problems are students going to be solving in a literature class? Mm-hmm. And what um, this essay does is kind of show some, show a kind of approach to literature that would help you answer that question. So I think it's also very creative and interesting in that way. Another very creative application that, again, I've not seen done much in English courses is the use of multimedia galleries. Yes, 
The Multimedia Gallery is another one which was focused on a particular kind of demonstration of, uh, again, how students are going to demonstrate their learning. This one really resonated with me because I've been doing something not quite exactly like this, but I have an end-of-the-semester assignment in my British Literature Survey class, which is very open-ended, and students can do, you know, choose lots of different ways in order to select one of the works that we read throughout the semester and then show why it's still relevant to us today. And they can do that through you know, presentations, but they can also do it through paintings or making music or you know, doing something like Jennifer Page argues here, creating these kinds of multimedia galleries. So I'm really interested in seeing the alternative ways in which people are letting students demonstrate their learning and, and show how and why these works are still important to us today. So what I think that's, that's good about it, uh, what she does in particular is, first of all, everybody creates these sort of multimedia galleries, which draw from, you know, again, like particular themes or issues or authors in the course. But then they also have to do a little bit of academic work. So they write a brief introduction to the author, the work or the period or whatever it is that they're focusing on. And they still have to do, you know, kind of a traditional work cited page to show where they got their information from. So to me, it's a nice combination of taking what we often sort of traditionally expect students to do in the survey, but then adding this piece where they are now doing something they're much more familiar with you know, creating this kind of um, this kind of material, these kinds of galleries, and still showing why they matter today. So, like you know, digital curation projects, it's really interesting stuff. So that's another one I think what she's presenting could be applied to to lots of different disciplines. The study of universal design for learning, and I will link to an episode about that topic as well. One of the things that it advocates is having multiple representations of things we're trying to have students learn, and then also giving them the opportunity to demonstrate their learning using multiple methods. And it sounds like this is a great practice to allow them to do that, which is going to support that deeper learning that you talked about. And it's also going to help make you know, more formal accommodations for those who have, you know, some sort of a learning disability or something like that, it allows them to access the learning. But one of the things that what I've learned about universal design for learning is that these kinds of things are good for everyone. I mean, there's, we don't want to just say, you know, that it's only helpful to one type of a learner, it can really be something more universally held that that benefits us all. Yeah, I picked up this phrase from Tom Tobin, the idea of plus one assessment. So plus one assignment design, you know, you think about what your objectives are and what you want your students to be able to do. And then you, you come up with what that's going to look like, but then you think about, okay, but I want to be able to offer an alternative. What's another way that someone could demonstrate these same objectives to me. And um, I really like that as a, as a, as a way of inviting students to take a little bit more ownership over their education and giving people lots of different ways to, to demonstrate their learning. I'm glad that you brought, Tom Tobin up as well, because he will be on the podcast later this year, too, to talk about his book that is a part of your same series, and his book on universal design for learning. So that'll be fun to hear him. I've heard him speak at a conference. And so it'll be funny to talk to him and not actually be able to see all his charisma and his facial expressions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's an energetic guy. I'll see if I can get him on Skype. So at least I can watch him. On video. Yeah, <laughs> he's great. And then the, yeah. the fourth one that we want to explore is just also another very innovative practice, and that is the blank syllabus. Yep, I've been interested in this approach and writing about it for several years now. <laughs> I've mined this for, I think, as much as I can. And Chris Walsh, who wrote that essay, has written about it himself as well. And, 
you know, what Chris does again to me is like a really fascinating thing that could be applied to any discipline. He allows his students to make some choices about some of the content of the course. And he calls this the blank syllabus approach. And as I always say to people, it's not actually a blank syllabus. (laughs) What he essentially does is he creates some blank spaces on his syllabus and he invites students to fill those blank spaces with what the things that have caught their interest. So at the beginning of the semester, you know, he'll show them a syllabus, which has these sort of open slots to it. And their first assignment of the semester, at least in one iteration of this, was to identify a work from the anthology that they were reading and nominate that work to be placed into those blank spot, into one of those blank spots. And then they had to write an essay about why. Why do you, why do you want to choose this work what do you think is important about it? Why do you think the class should read it? And on the days when they were talking about those works, the students were help, partially responsible for leading the discussion on those days. So again, to me, it's not so much you know about this specific survey or about this, his, Chris's specific way of doing it, but I just love the idea of creating a blank space on my syllabus and inviting students to fill that in. In fact, I w- was very inspired by this, and I did it in a different way, Uh, in my own survey class, instead of focusing on the content and inviting students to sort of fill in one of the readings, I have a thousand points, typically that my classes are, you know, a thousand points are available, and I just kept a hundred points blank. And so I invited the students to think with me about what do you want to do for these hundred points? Here's where it's going to fall in the semester. Here's what I want you to be able to demonstrate um, at at this point, or here are the kind of skills that um, are that we haven't I haven't yet asked you to formalize in other assessments, so that's what we need to do. But I'm open to however you guys think you can best do this. And so you know, having that conversation was great, and it was really interesting, and you know, allowed them to take some ownership over the class. So that one has been very inspiring to me, and I think it's worth thinking about for uh, almost any discipline and almost any type of class. Where are the opportunities in my syllabus for students to make their voices heard? One thing I wanted to mention is that it's so becoming increasingly easy to allow technology to facilitate these kinds of things. And in your learning management system, or even if you work outside your learning management system, you can embed a Google Doc. And what that means by embed is that it just appears there. It looks like it's in your learning management system, even though it's just a window into a document that you stored somewhere else. But you can make that where the students can type right into it. And I did this as a means of reflective learning toward the end of one of my doctoral classes. And they were all typing into the same Google Doc at the same time, and I'd never tried it before. And it, and it really worked well just as another way for them to reflect on their learning. And again, they're all typing into it. And even I use the learning management system Canvas, and it was worth learning even that within it, it has signups. So for student presentations, I used to have, okay, print out a piece of paper and everybody pass it around the class and sign up for the mm. time that you want your presentation. Well, there's two problems with that. One is I'm notorious for losing paper. I can't. <laughs> and and even <laughs> if I manage to keep a hold of it because I take a picture of it, then they're constantly saying, now, when was I signed up for again? And, you know, it's just not... <laughs> Yeah. It's not helpful for anyone. And it's it's worth it in your LMS just to look for what possibilities there are to create signups for students and allow that to be something that they have the autonomy to do. And, you know, that that's really helpful for them. They Then it's always in the same place. They know what they signed up for because it's within the central hub of their learning, too. 
Yeah, that's great. Uh, you're right. And you can use lots of different things. You can use polling as well mm-hmm. as a way to just sort of get it. If you're, you know, having a class discussion, for example, about, you know, here's some options for what you might do. You could use polling to kind of get a quick sense of what most students are tending toward. And, and that's useful for students to see as well right, so that they can, you know, get a sense of what others are thinking. And then that can be a great way to start a discussion about, you know, a blank spot on your syllabus that you're going to try and fill together. I love it. Well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I wanted to say thanks to my friends at LSU. I got to go out and speak at their Communicating Across the Curriculum Summer Institute. And they they really, speaking of this last item we just talked about, they really integrated their learning management system, Moodle, into the whole program. And so they had it all built out and they linked out to my slides and my resources pages and all that sort of thing. And every session, same thing. And one of the groupings they had was around group projects. And they linked to Carnegie Mellon's Eberly Center for Teaching Excellence and Educational Innovation, an article, actually a whole resource on what are the best practices for designing group projects. And it's built around accomplishing three aims in using group projects as a method of teaching. One is to create interdependence. And usually we, we, the temptation for students is, okay, you take the first section, you take the second section. You, I mean, any of us would do this, just like, let's get it done. Yep. How do we build yep. assignments that actually are building the kind of teamwork and collaborative skills that we're looking to build by this sense of interdependence? And then how do we, in our teaching, devote time in our classes specifically to growing these teamwork skills? Because it's not something that necessarily everyone's going to come into with. So how do we have that as part of the teaching and learning process? And then how do we build in individual accountability? And what I like about the resources, it's very specific, so it's tangible and we can use it, but it also recognizes that we have different teaching styles and approaches and what works in one case may not work in another. So it's just a really well done resource worth a, a look on the show notes when you either get them in your email or go to visit the page for this episode. Actually, the Eberly Center has a great sort of huge set of web pages, which are resources about teaching and learning in higher education. So I'd recommend people just look at the whole, you know, there, there's wide uh, range of issues that are, that are covered on those pages. I, I go back to them occasionally just to get ideas for things in all kinds of different areas. Oh, very good to know. I I, th- I believe I got lost, but at the same time I was at an event, so I was like, stop it, stop it, <laughs> stay focused, <laughs> which is hard to do when you come across a resource as good as that one. Well, Jim, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you have to recommend for us today, Jim? Well, the first thing I just want to say quickly is that, of course, I'm getting all the glory for this book right now, but of course I did it with two co-editors, Gwen Dujardin uh, from Queen's University in Canada and John Stoughton from Eastern Michigan. So, you know, this was absolutely a joint effort as well as, of course, from all our, our contributors, but Gwen and John were really, you know, all three of us worked very hard on this book. So I want to thank uh, Gwen and John for their contributions to it as well. But the book I want to recommend, I'm kind of late to the party on, but I discovered it this spring, and it's The Slow Professor, and I know it has stirred up some controversy uh, because not everyone agrees that, with, first of all, with the premise that you know the academic world should, should move slowly and that we should pause and you know, try to resist what they refer to as the corporatization of the university. Uh, and then there's the other sort of folks saying, well, you know, that's a luxury that many of us can't afford is to try and move and think more slowly in the academic world. And I, I think those 
criticisms are very legitimate and worth considering, but I also think the book is very thought-provoking. Uh, and so it made me kind of pause and think a little bit about, like, what are sort of my values and priorities as, a, as an academic? Um, am I sort of doing everything I can to achieve those? Um, and are there places where I need to step back and other places where I need to step up? So we're, in fact, going to host a faculty learning community around it on my campus, because not because I'm trying to give everybody recommendations that we should follow, but because I think it'll spark a good conversation precisely because there's a lot of room for disagreement about their arguments. So if you're looking for a book that's thought-provoking and that, you know, is going to force you to um, maybe confront some of your sort of settled thoughts about academia and where we are and where we're going, I think it's a good one in that respect. Like I said, I don't agree with everything about it, but, but it definitely made me think, and I don't know what else we can ask of a book these days. Absolutely. And I have had it recommended to me and to have the authors on many times and just haven't gotten around to it yet. But I, I, your description of it is really helpful for me and makes me think I should read it. I certainly am one who would benefit in life by slowing down a bit. <laughs> well, and the best part about it is the book is like 100 pages long. So, you know, so you can, you know, it's definitely... Uh, manageable, even in a, with a busy academic schedule. Oh, good to know. Well, Jim, it is so great to have you back on the show. And, and thanks for introducing us to this book in your series. And I'm so excited to talk to other authors along the way and just really appreciate your work on an ongoing basis. I, I just love the opportunity to get to learn from you. Thank you, Bonnie. Likewise. Thank you once again to Jim Lang for joining me on today's episode. And as we were talking about, you know, it's hard to slow down sometimes. And I think I need to read The Slow Professor so I can do that a little bit better. Today, the person we had coming to care for our kids while my husband and I worked is not feeling well. So the kids are here with me in the podcasting studio. Hannah, what are we going to do after we're done with the podcast? Um, I got my, I'm getting my haircut after this at the, uh, um, after this at the mall. Yeah, is that your favorite place to get your haircut? Yes. What do you like about the mall? That it gives me lollipops and lets me watch it so well I'm getting my haircut. Yeah, they have good movies playing there in the background, huh? And good lollipops. And good lollipops. Hannah, don't talk too loud or Andrew has to edit it out. Okay. Okay. And Luke, did you want to tell people something about you're glad for? Thank you for watching the Teaching in Higher Ed. Yeah, thanks for listening to the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. And Luke, did you want to say something else? Maybe. I love that music you just played, Mommy. It's good. If people have not signed up for the email list, they should because they can get the links to all the great stuff that we talk about every week. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you want to check out the notes specifically for today's that episode. Is, mommy, that is not what you were going to say. Oh, did I change my story up a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> teachinginhighered.com slash Let me hear you laugh again, Mommy. Do you like when I laugh, Hannah? I like this music. It reminds me of swing dancing in my 20s. Swing, 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 dance. It's good music, huh? I do not like this music. Not everyone likes it. It's a love-hate thing. Either you really like it or you really don't. Okay, say goodbye, I everybody. I say goodbye. I never liked it. Bye. Bye. I accidentally twist my microphone and my...